Welcome to the Voices in Bioethics podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Michael Scroggins, a lecturer at UCLA. He's at the Institute for Society and Genetics, and he is a lecturer on data science, pandemics, and generally disruptive innovation. Welcome, Michael. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So I was going to start by talking about knowledge today. Nicholas Carr describes a change. Now knowledge is conceived as something we swim through and consume, but it used to be an ideal. Many see knowledge as information that is contextualized, but in what ways do you see knowledge changing? And will ChatGPT affect knowledge and what it means to know? Yeah, that's a really complicated question, right? I mean, the history of knowledge is this philosophical concept has a long history from the very, very start of philosophy, which is the seeking of truth as an ideal. I think one thing to keep in mind is that there's a difference between knowledge. In my in my estimation, knowledge is a very kind of something humans arrive at. I mean, whether a machine can arrive at knowledge is a is a is an interesting question, but I'll leave that for a proper philosopher and I won't kind of wade in there. But I, I think one thing we need to understand about Chat GPT is that it's really a calculating machine, right? And that makes some um, statistical predictions from large data sets and it traffics in information and data. Data is an interesting term that comes about in the late 19th century and early 20th century that really means the process of making numerical data fit, putting it in order so it can be calculated. Um, Information is a term that comes into being with broadcast media, and it means something like transmission across a channel, right? So these are very technical, machine-centric terms as opposed to knowledge. I think Carr's right. that It is something we swim through, but it used to be an ideal. But to kind of push back maybe a little bit about the premise of this question is, I, I do think it's worth holding knowledge apart still as an ideal or something that humans achieve with other humans. And, and they may use machines as tools in this process, but it is very much as kind of human achievement. One thing I think we really need to kind of clarify before when we're talking about these um what are really calculating information systems is that data is one term and it really originally, now it's kind of a catch-all garbage truck of a term, but it did originally mean to put numerical data in order for calculation. There is a, a term that has fallen into disuse that I think actually gives a better sense of what these systems do. And that is CAPTA, which means that which is captured or taken for calculation. And when we're in the world of, of um, sort of data emitting devices, as we all are, this Zoom call, our phones, you know, the whole, everybody knows the, the rigmarole of digital devices we carry around. Um, we are really in that world of what is taken from us and captured from us rather than what is arranged for calculation. There's sort of this passive objective sense. Then along those lines where we don't see the computer itself as having knowledge, knowledge is particularly human, technology really just organizes data and kind of delivers this information. Is the view that technology is smart, inaccurate, and is there any issue with people referring to it as smart technology, smartphones? Is there something harmful behind that? I mean, I mean, on the one hand, I understand it as a sort of a practical expression, right? Technology can be smart when compared to other technology. But I, I mean, I think we should really guard against imputing sort of human ideals and emotions to technology. It's not smart like a clever dog might be smart or like a like a human being can be smart or a crow might be smart, right? It, it's not the same thing. It is this, it's still, a, it's a calculated machine. It's, it's, 
I, I really think we should kind of try to push digital technology um, back into the box a little bit by um, not falling victim to the hype. I mean, if there's anything I would say about um, ChatGPT and the most digital and, you know, the promises that are being made and the hype around um, AI today, it is, I mean, to quote the great Chuck D, you know, don't believe the hype. The claims are overstated, right? And, and I think this becomes really obvious when, well, let me back up here. The most hype, the most intense heat and hype around AI right now is about economic productivity and efficiency, how it's going to increase efficiency in healthcare, how it's going to increase efficiency in manufacturing and, and all of these other places where the efficiencies will touch. But actually, if you take a step back and look at sort of the broad scope of, of economic productivity since the late 70s, what you see in the global north is a steady decline in the rate of productivity increasing. It has been steadily declining now for 50 years. Um, you know, the computer revolution came and went and it didn't really change that. So the internet came and is still monk and went and it didn't really change that. Um, and I don't really think there's much reason to think that AI is going to reverse that trend either. So I, I think really, when you're in the world of these new technologies, you really have to um, guard against believing the hype too much because it does have the effect of bringing out our, our, our most utopian and most dystopian thoughts about technology when, as a practical matter, probably what will happen is you'll, you'll run to AI every time you engage in some customer service or maybe minor medical diagnosis or something like that. It will definitely be used, but it's not going to um, revolutionize um, efficiency across the range of industries like it's like the claims say. Do you think in a way particular to to science and medicine, do you think it might change research significantly or even change researchers because there is so much information at their fingertips? Yes, actually I do. And in some ways that will be important. I think one of those ways I worked for several years when I was a postdoc at UCLA and I worked with astronomers for several years. And um, when I started, machine learning and AI and astronomy wasn't really very important. But then in the two or three years I was there, AI became very important and machine learning became very important in a handful of new sort of um, subfields. One of them was the discovery of exoplanets and so forth, mainly because the new class of telescopes is producing so much data that it's not really human-sized data. You can't wrap, it's like a fire hose. You really can't wrap your head around all the data that's coming through. Something about big data, when we talk about data and big data, what we're really talking about is um, volume, that's the size, big, but also velocity, right? So volume and velocity, veracity is not usually one of the things we worry about so much, but volume and velocity are, are the two key components here. And so machine learning has become important in, in something like astronomy to look for exoplanets, but also, you know, in health and medicine, I think one of the earliest places you'll feel it is um, drug discovery. will probably change drug discovery a lot. And uh, will it change how research is done? Um, in some ways, yes. I mean, it's already something that's been felt in the sciences for two or three decades now, ever since large databases um, came into existence, which is that you do need specialized coding and statistical um, expertise in any large data science that's involved in the, that relies on large amounts of data. So I, I think there'll be more call for data scientists and, and coding skills and other techniques will be developed to kind of trawl through these big tranches of data. And do you think in that medical arena that there's a little less concern with cause now because there is just this huge, huge body of data so you can look at correlations and you might be able to predict and find that new drug discovery? Should we still be concerned with why the drug works or should we just be doing this matching? 
Well, I mean, this is really kind of like a, uh, this is an interesting, interesting um, conflict between sort of science as it's traditionally been practiced and engineering as it's traditionally been practiced, right? I mean, one of the great hallmarks of good engineering is that the bridge stands up, right? And it's sort of the empirical evidence that the bridge stands is a hallmark of good engineering. So, I mean, this is an ongoing debate, whether causation, whether that's important or what like fundamental, how much fundamental science is important now and should be funded. I mean, I, I think ideally you would have it working from both directions, right? You would have both these sort of trawling through these um, big data sets looking for, for correlations that are interesting, and then you would try to find out the fundamental reasons why they are correlated or not. But probably what's going to happen, and it's just, I mean, the thing about science or engineering or technology in general is that um, there is no such thing as unlimited time. Time's arrow points one way and time is limited, and there isn't always you know, the demand for speed is um, an accompaniment of technological intensification and the demand for speed often precludes this kind of slow, slow work that um, uncovers some fundamental things. So I do think probably what will happen is there'll be, you'll see some of the more fundamental work fall by the wayside as um, these new techniques come to um, exercise their their power and then some results from them, which I think is is potentially very dangerous. Right. I mean, if you think about prediction, this prediction is interesting because this was really the promise of the Human Genome Project, right? That it was going to disrupt medicine by changing from the diagnose and treat paradigm to a new predict and prevent paradigm. I mean, that has yet to happen. Will it happen because of machine learning and AI and these large language models? I don't really think so, right? I mean, you know, if you look back at the history of these genome-wide association studies, a lot of the early, most of the early ones don't stand up. It's been a problematic field. They're better now, but, you know, there have been a lot of mistakes and miscues there. And, and if those mistakes and miscues start to enter into sort of clinical um, judgment, then I think there's a real possibility for serious problems. It seems like part of what you're saying or the process you're describing is kind of backwards. It's like your backfilling cause. We're observing these things that might be predictive, and then we're looking at why after the fact. And I just wonder if observing those correlations and doing it that direction, at what point in that process should patients be affected? I mean, do you think it is fine to just observe this large swath of correlations? And whether you're in that sort of genomic prediction or you have found a new drug discovery, but you really don't know why it works, at what point should that be released to the patients? That's a really hard question, but let me say this. I think one of the great safeguards of medical science is that clinical practice is still has a very strong professional identity, right? Clinical practitioners are still very strong professional identities, and they control a lot about clinical practice. It uh, can also be very traditional and very slow to change, and I think this is a real safeguard against some of that. I mean, I, I think it's been a dream to push this sort of data generated insights into clinical practice for several decades now, but it has been very slow or non-existent to have. It's been very slow to happen, I think, for very good reasons that um, medical professionals, I think, are operate, you know, on a case-by-case -case basis, right? They operate with a patient in front of them. And so just a, they operate by a very different logic than research scientists in many ways. And translating this kind of research into clinical practice is um, in the future, definitely in the future. I don't know if it'll happen, but I do think that doctors are a kind of nice, traditional, kind of conservative bulwark against that kind of widespread adoption. 
I think there is some evidence that doctors want to stick with sort of the status quo, at least as far as how they address patients and discuss things. And so they might be a little bit able to slow down some of these changes. I also think you have, I mean, the other great change here is that when you're looking at a statistical data set, you are you are talking about um, statistical correlations and averages and medians and means and so forth. But when you're doing clinical medicine, you're talking about an individual with very particular idiosyncratic, you know, priors who is right in front of you. So, I mean, the logic is very different. I mean, especially the logic of treatment is very different. So I, I don't know quite how those are going to be bridged. I mean, you know, this is just a conflict, about an epistemological conflict that will play out. Yeah, it will be interesting to see. I think from the patient's perspective, a lot of patients really want trust in that patient-doctor relationship in traditional ways as it's been in the past. So moving on a little bit to confidentiality and all of this data that is out there, What do large language models really mean for confidentiality and secret keeping? Nothing good, I can tell you that. I mean, the way that these things are trained are just on um, publicly available data sets, right? Or even not publicly available data sets. When you're talking about confidentiality, we're really talking about this shadowy world of third-party data brokers. I mean, Facebook, when these social media companies collect your data, you know, they sell it to aggregators, third-party data aggregators, who then resell it for various things. So there's been studies that show that it's very, very easy to destroy confidentiality or privacy by combining certain data sets. I mean, I read a good example the other day. Let's say there's a you want to identify a single white female in a metropolitan area with um, major metropolitan, say Los Angeles, with, with no dependents. Okay, that's a hard problem. Now let's say you want to identify a single white female in Los Angeles with five dependents, um, two of whom are twins. That is That turns out to be a very easy problem to solve. So um, privacy has its differentials in this sense as well. This is going to be a very hard problem, especially in the U.S. where there aren't any strong rules against this. What could happen is, you know, there are new, new EU draft rules for how these large, what data sets these large language models can be trained on and that, that involve copyright and trademarks. And, you know, so if something happens there, that would probably slow the spread. But other than that, I, I think it's very easy to trample over confidentiality and privacy privacy these days. And that is in the absence of strong laws in the U.S. against data protection, right? I mean, there's no control over what is taken or captured from you in the U.S. except by reading the end-user agreements on these social media companies, which, I mean, 99% of people do not do. So, I think sacrificing confidentiality is sort of the give and take for improved access and improved connectivity. And we notice that people are more connected and divulging more and more to it. And even during the pandemic, people began using the internet even more for things that they could have done in person with perhaps a little bit less data collection. For example, online shopping, online learning, Zoom, online meetings. So there was just more and more and more data. And it seems like that coincided with the evolution of the large language models and the two phenomena feed off each other. Is there a way that privacy tools can do more to keep the data and misinformation and private information all out of the purview of large language models? You know, a lot of this data privacy conversation in the U.S. has revolved around tools for end users. 
right? What can I do as a consumer to prevent this from happening to me? I don't really think there's a consumer. This isn't really a consumer issue. I think it's a more fundamental political issue that can really only be addressed through um, legislation at the federal level. Yeah, it seems like even the strictest states, when they adopt legislation and it's not federal, it's really difficult because we are at the point where the apps collecting the data and the online shopping, all of the vendors are relatively global. No, it's very easy for a large multinational corporation to evade um, to evade a set of regulations it doesn't like by simply changing locations. That's uh, one of the great advantages of being a multinational corporation, right? You can take advantage of differential regulations in country. I mean, you know, this Ireland loophole for economic, for taxes that all the technology companies uh, take advantage of. Yeah, there are lots of examples of shopping for the most lax law. So to change course here, I have a little bit of a lightning round. These are just all really quick yes-no questions. Should author use of ChatGPT be considered plagiarism? I think that really depends on how you use it, right? I mean, if you're using it to compose something from whole cloth, certainly that's plagiarism. But if you're using it as kind of an idea generator, what's this old rhetorical term, a sort of a commonplace book, let's call it. I think that's a qualitatively different kind of use. And in the fact, if using ChatGPT did just de facto constitute plagiarism, I think about 90% of university students would be leading Yeah, some people have had academic ideas like citing it a certain way or even looking at how it is deficient. So a student could kind of use it for a paragraph and then maybe explain what it missed or what it didn't get or what it could do differently. But I agree with you. I think its use is already widespread. I think the genie is out of the bottle there. I I would say uh, that it is dangerous in one very particular way for naive users, and that is it will make up citations or just, you know, it is like Mad Libs. That's what ChatGPT is. And it will make things up about 20% of the time. And if you don't know enough about a topic to realize (laughs) that, you can really, you know, you can really make some just outlandishly stupid mistakes. Something that a knowledgeable user would never would never make, right? Yeah, it does seem like, you know, recently there was a lawyer in trouble for that, for citing fake cases on that. So it is happening that people are relying on it and trusting it. So that brings me to my next question, which is a little more about truth. Is it possible to create programs to verify the truth of the information that these large language models produce? No. And do you think it should be illegal to embed ChatGPT in Windows 11? No. I think it'll probably be embedded in the Office Suite initially, where it'll probably have a role in developing macros for Excel. It'll probably make its biggest impact in Excel use, right? Because if ChatGPT is good at anything, it is computer programming and and those kind of formal rules-based languages. Should it be embedded in social media apps that children use? I would say in an ideal world, no, but that I, I think it's probably an impossible policing to ask. Yeah, it seems like there's a bit of an arms race there and that there is already word that it will be in that sort of suite of social media apps. Do you think there should be government approval prior to public deployment of new types of technology? No, not to new types of technology. I think what Government reg the role of government regulation here should be to protect the rights of citizens. 
And if there's anything we can learn about new technology, particularly digital technologies that rely on data, it's that we need to think of ourselves as citizens, not as consumers, and demand rights as politically active citizens who are concerned about our democracy and the world we live in, not as consumers who are kind of flitting from new sensation to new sensation. I, I think that from consumers to citizens is the switch that needs to be flipped in, in regulation. And do you think the benefits of access to so much information make up for the harm that can be caused by misinformation? No, in no way, no way. <laughs> I mean, I, I I think I have a real problem with these terms, misinformation and disinformation. I, I think for one, they kind of add a kind of human element to um, information systems that they haven't earned or don't really deserve. It, it is people who do things with information systems. I mean, certainly information systems can reshuffle um, information in new ways, deliver it to new places, but it is humans that do the work. And I also, I think it covers up an older, you know, a lot of what goes by is misinformation and disinformation. 50 years ago or 100 years ago, we would probably call it folklore. Right. I mean, it is um, sort of the rumor innuendo, traditional knowledge, the ways, you know, obscure reasons given. It is sort of a meaning making process for people, I think, to engage in misinformation, unfortunately. And I, I think it kind of covers that up. It covers the human element up, I think, too often. I'm going to ask you if you have anything to add. Do I don't have anything to add? I'll be very short and sweet here. Yeah, I, I think it's time we uh, rehabilitate human judgment and stop um, selling ourselves short and comparing ourselves negatively to machines. You know, um, we should govern ourselves and pass regulation in terms of our being citizens of um, this country and of the world and interested in democratic um, governance. And we shouldn't think of ourselves so much as consumers. The stakes are political, not so much consumerish. So this will be my final comments. Thank you. I think that's a great point and very important and deliberative democracy for us to have a good understanding of what the role of citizenship entails. So thank you. This was Michael Scroggins from UCLA, and this has been the Voices in Bioethics podcast. I'm Ann Zimmerman, and thank you. Thank you, Michael, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be here.